Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault. Like that's ever gonna happen. What a logic. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. She was looking kind of dumb with her finger and her thumb in the shape of an L on her forehead. Well, the years start coming and they don't stop coming. Fed to the rules and I hit the ground running. Didn't make sense not to live for fun. Your brain gets smart but your head gets dumb. So much to do, so much to see. So what's wrong with taking the back streets? You'll never know if you don't go. You'll never shine if you don't glow. Hey now, Seamless. Seamless. Look at us, the smoothest show around, no hiccups whatsoever. Hello, I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I recently traveled to Duloc and can confirm it is indeed the perfect town, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, for our second official live episode with a sold out audience at King's Place, London. This is amazing. <laughs> I'm a donkey on the edge, on a quest to find a blue flower with red thorns, but getting distracted by every nice boulder that I pass. <laughs> Thankfully though, I'm not all alone, and I do have someone here to guide me. <laughs> in fact, probably the only guide in the entire world you would want by your side if you had to talk about Shrek for 90 minutes. <laughs> and believe me, 90 minutes is gonna be a squeeze. We're gonna be flying through this thing. He has more layers than an onion, a cake, and an ogre put together. But more important than any of those things, including the fact that he has quite literally written the academic book on Shrek and spoken at Shrek academic conferences, which it turns out are a thing. Because the I most... made them a thing. <laughs> That's your power. The most important thing is his deed is great and his heart is pure. I am, of course, talking about Dr. DreamWorks himself, the one and only Sam Summers. Now, Sam, you're our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time, but this time we are sidestepping things a little bit. We're talking about a different studio altogether in DreamWorks, one that probably isn't quite as beloved as Disney, though Shrek absolutely is a groundbreaking film. This is your specialist subject. This is the first time we're discussing a film that just flat out has nothing to do with Disney. So why is it important on our Disney podcast to talk about Shrek? Sells tickets, doesn't it? <laughs> Apparently so. Amazing. I don't think when I got this audience for Atlantis the Lost Empire. <laughs> for some reason. Brother Bear. It's not it's not bringing in the punters. Yeah, I mean we wanted to do something that was adjacent to Disney, but kind of chronologically aligned with where we were on the podcast. And Shrek hit like an atom bomb on the animation industry in that <laughs> bomb that smells of onions, on the animation industry in 2001. It, it wasn't like it was doing 
things that no one had ever done before. It was bringing together things that people had done before, like celebrity voices, pop music, and intertextual references in, in a way, in a form that you hadn't really seen. And it was obviously taken direct aim at the Disney studio, um, arguably for very specific reasons, but in a way that made Disney up their game and made everyone up their game. I, like Toy Story, Disney slash obviously Pixar's attempt at the first attempt. No, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the first computer animated feature film. In a way, it has quite a lot in common, like textually, with the Disney catalog. It, but Shrek jarred against that, it rubbed up against it. Yeah, it, it made Disney change, it made everybody change. So that is why we're covering Shrek today. Uh, for all of you people here at half past 11 in the morning on a Saturday, what are you doing? <laughs> Now, who here has listened to Disneyversity before? Can I get a, a whoop or a cheer? I see hands, but it... Is this anybody's first Disneyversity? Have we got any total newcomers here? A small handful of woo. Well, welcome. And right, if you've listened to the show before, you know we have a little bit of music that comes in at various points in the show that last time I was like, can we get people to sing it live in the room? Maybe it'll be terrible. Maybe it'll be great. It was amazing. So... What I'm going to need is, at various points, I will cue you up, but to give us a do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Let's have, let's have a practice run. Can we get one of those? <laughs> Perfect. Spot on. Absolutely beautiful. So, that is enough from us. We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time we're swapping studios entirely and cranking up the Smash Mouth for a film that changed the course of Disney history in its own way. Mainly by royally taking the piss out of it and whacking on a load of pop culture references and fart jokes for good measure. That film is, of course, 2001's Shrek. <laughs> Woo, thank you. Okay. I can't imagine there's anyone in this room, Sam, who hasn't seen Shrek before. But do you want to give us a little plot rundown of Shrek Has anywhere? anyone not seen Shrek before? That would be incredible. <laughs> no. Everyone in the room has seen Shrek. At least once, probably several times. <laughs> okay, so I hate this bit. So Shrek is a grouchy ogre who loves living on his own in his swamp. But when the swamp is overrun by fairy tale creatures who've been kicked out of their homes by the evil Lord Farquaad, Shrek must team up with a talking donkey to save a princess and win his land back. Extremely straightforward. Smooth. Smoothly done. So, to tell the story of how Shrek came to be, there, there's something important that we need to set up. Somebody who's been a regular fixture of our show for a little while now mentioned <laughs> extensively across the Disney Renaissance era. Sam... What can you tell us about Jeffrey Katzenberg, our guy-ish, <laughs> and why he's integral to the Shrek story? Um, you know, much like Shrek itself, the story of the creation of Shrek has a hero and a villain. Oh, yeah? were, they, were they holding out for that hero? <laughs> the, oh, that Shrek 2. That Shrek 2. I could two. feel instantly Sam being like, that's Shrek 2! That's not Shrek. <laughs> the hero is, of course, former Disney executive Jeffrey Katzenberg. The villain is then current Disney CEO, Michael Eisner. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen any of this, by the way. This is amazing. It's uncanny, isn't it? Uncanny, I think, is the word for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Jeffrey Katzenberg was the president of the production company, the, the Disney studio, the movie studio. And he joined in 1984 under his longtime ally from Paramount, from their days in Paramount, Michael Eisner, who was CEO. And he got up to some antics <laughs> uh, at the studio. So I've just got a list of uh, Katzenberg decisions. Uh, immediately on arrival, started personally and crudely editing the Black Cauldron with a pair of scissors to the dismay of the animators. Uh, tried to cut part of your world from The Little Mermaid. How dare you? Ooh. Try to cast Steve Martin as Goofy. <laughs> <laughs> and have him speak in a normal voice. Uh, wanted Timon and Pumba to dress up like John Travolta and sing Staying Alive. <laughs> Sat next to Alan Menken while he was composing the score for The Hunchback of Notre Dame and jabbed him in the ribs every time he wanted it to be bigger. <laughs> to be fair, that worked. Like, the music Massive. could not be bigger for The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And flew Andrea Previn to his house to tell him that he hated classical music but still wanted to recruit him for a sequel to Fantasia featuring the music of The Beatles. <laughs> Lots of rogue Katzenberg decisions. What else do we love about Jeffrey Katzenberg? Jeffrey Katzenberg really likes a can of Diet Coke. And, and for some reason, I think that's the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> He's a Diet Coke guy, which that reminds me, I know you're a Coke Zero guy or Coke a regular Zero. A Pepsi Coke Max guy. Pepsi Max guy, ideally guy. as well. Well, let's crack a Diet Coke in honor of Jeffrey Katzenberg. <laughs> that's going to sound horrible on the podcast. <laughs> Enjoy that, everybody. Mmm, it makes me feel high-powered and erratic. <laughs> so, Katzenberg is a big deal. How does he become an integral part of, of Shrek coming together? So, the story of Katzenberg is that in 1994, just before The Lion King was released, what was going to be become Katzenberg's big success story, the current president of the Disney company, Eisner's number two, a guy called Frank Wells, tragically passed away. And Eisner refused to give Katzenberg Frank Wells' job, even though Katzenberg thought he deserved it. So he left, slash was fired from, we don't really know, the company, and founded his own movie studio with fellow submarine sandwich entrepreneur Steven Spielberg. <laughs> That's the uh, submarine-themed submarine sandwich restaurant Dive uh, that they founded in L.A. They wanted to revolutionize the submarine sandwich. <laughs> and said they sunk it to the ocean depths. And every, every hour, they would come on the screens in the restaurant, dive, 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 and it would simulate the submarine diving into the ocean, and it didn't take off. That is exactly what I want while I'm eating a sandwich. <laughs> so that's the first Katzenberg-Spielberg collab. For the second one, they got in music mogul David Geffen and founded DreamWorks SKG, Spielberg, Katzenberg, Geffen. Geffen was going to run it as a music label, Spielberg was going to produce live-action movies, and Katzenberg was put in charge of DreamWorks Animation. So we get a couple of DreamWorks animated films. They kind of start out by trying to compete with Disney in a way. You have films like The Prince of Egypt and The Road to El Dorado, which are kind of doing a similar thing to what Disney is doing. Suddenly they have additional competition. But when does it come up to make a film like Shrek? that overtly takes a swipe at what Disney is doing, not trying to match them, trying to, you know, almost take Disney down. I mean, the, the competition with Disney on Katzenberg's part was always very overt. So he, he didn't just leave Disney, he was involved in a protracted lawsuit with Disney over royalties from The Lion King. And there were numerous cloak and dagger efforts at DreamWorks to directly undermine that studio. So they poached animation staff, they poached Stephen Schwartz, uh, who was meant to be working on Mulan. They got him to come in and do the music for Prince of Egypt and allegedly stealing the idea for A Bug's Life to make ants. 
And then, well, that's, that's true. Like, uh, John Lasseter, like, maintains that he told Katzenberg all about A Bug's Life before he left Disney, and they just went, oh, no, we'll do Ants. It's a new idea, it's Ants. And the one thing he remembered from that picture, I think it was something about Ants. Let's just do something <laughs> Ants. And, and the idea was we're going to push this out the door to beat Pixar's film, and, and they did. They got it out before A Bug's Life. And, I, I mean, I don't think that worked. And a Bug's <laughs> Life is maybe the more well-remembered movie. Ants has its... It's moments. <laughs> but in terms of Shrek, like Shrek was in production almost this entire time. Steven Spielberg already had the rights to the book, for yes, Shrek was based on a book by William Steig. And he had that since 1991, when Spielberg had his own animation studio, a 2D animation studio called Amblimation, which made uh, Balto and We're Back, a dinosaur story. <laughs> if you've listened to our dinosaur episode, you will have heard this come up. Um, so, so Spielberg had the right, he was going to make it 2D at Amblimation, but then when they brought it into DreamWorks, Katzenberg was like, all right, okay, this works, we'll adapt this story, we'll make it funny, and we'll make it, originally it was going to be like Dinosaur, actually, live-action backdrops, like miniature live-action sets with motion capture Shreks on top of them. And the guy who was working on the motion capture who was like developing this technology with uh, three of his friends, a group known as the Propeller Heads, was... was they gave themselves that name, didn't they? <laughs> Nobody else called them that. They, they tried to make it a thing. Was it, I can't pick, they're wearing those caps, maybe, with the propellers? With a propeller on it, maybe. Anyway, J.J. Uh, Abrams. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Was the leader of the Propeller Heads and developed the motion capture technology for Shrek, which looked so bad that it was never used. Um, <laughs> But he, he, he did all right for himself, didn't he, JJ? I was going to say, now I know that JJ's involved, I retract anything negative I said about the propeller heads. I'm sorry, JJ, I love you. So it's tempting to view Shrek entirely as Jeffrey Katzenberg's attempt to just crash the Disney formula because it's making so many really direct jabs at Disney. But, like, we don't want to give them too much credit for that. That's kind of going to be the theme of this episode, really. But Disney were already kind of moving away from that formula to start with, like Emperor's New Groove came out before Shrek. So we've actually we've recorded Emperor's New Groove. Listeners at home will have heard it. You guys haven't. We liked it. It's so good. It's so good. Great time with Emperor's New Groove. And yeah, really interesting as a sort of tee-up to Shrek. And there's various reports on how much Katzenberg was directly involved in the film. This wasn't being animated at the main DreamWorks studio, which was where the 2D studio was. It was being animated at Pacific Data Images, which was a CG studio that they bought. And it was being directed by a woman called Vicky Jensen and a guy called Andrew Adamson. And Adamson in particular was the guy who was really pushing for pop culture references, music, ad like pop music, adult humor. And apparently he had to like push against Katzenberg to get that in, which I, I don't know if I entirely believe that because that's all Katzenberg is. That's, that's what he's always been. Every movie you worked on before and every movie you worked on after, he's like, let's put pop music in, let's put adult jokes in, what a Toy Story to be edgier to the point where he upset Tom Hanks with how much of a jerk Woody was being. How dare he upset yeah. Tom Hanks? That is nearly impossible to do. And he bought the rights to the song Everybody's Kung Fu Fighting for use in the movie Kung Fu Panda when they didn't have anything other than the title Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> <laughs> this man is just made of pop culture references. If anyone saw Ahsoka this week, the moment where Marek gets slashed and he's just, he's just air leaking out of a bag, that is Jeffrey Katzenberg, but the stuff coming out is pop culture references, <laughs> fart gags, and pop songs. 
So that feels like some of it has to be Katzenberg's idea, but apparently it was rubbing up against Warner. But I think that the Disney stuff generally is ascribed to him. He specifically really wanted Lord Farquaad to be short. And apparently the reason for that is that Eisner would constantly make fun of Katzenberg for being pretty short. So he thought, I'll make a character who looks like Michael Eisner and make him short. <laughs> Shorter even than me. Uh, this is how I win. <laughs> he's, he's so petty. Uh, the other thing that's very Katzenbergy about this film is that it has big star names attached. That was a huge thing through the Disney Renaissance. So how do Mike Myers and Eddie Murphy and Cameron Diaz come into this picture? I mean, basically everyone knew Katzenberg and wanted to work with Katzenberg. Like, at this point, he was a hotshot. He was able to portray himself as, I am responsible for the success of the Disney studio. The only one where there's kind of an interesting meander and road is with Mike Myers. The original choice for Shrek was Nicolas Cage. <laughs> what? <laughs> do, you, do you do a Nicolas Cage impression? Can you give us a Nicolas I Cage I don't, Shrek? you know. I can't even try. I do a lot of bad impressions, but... <laughs> I, I, I also don't think I can attempt that. All um, right, okay. You're the impressions guy, Alex. I'll record it later on at home. I'll <laughs> practice and we'll patch it in. Okay. Okay, this is Nicolas Cage as Shrek, take 28. Ogres are like onions. Onions have layers, ogres have layers. You get it? We both have layers. I don't care what everyone likes. Ogres are not like cakes. No, you dense, irritating, miniature beast of burden. Ogres are like onions. End of story. Bye-bye. See you later. <laughs> wow, that was, that was something. So uh, Nick Cage declined because he didn't want to be an ogre. <laughs> he was like, if I'm an ogre, then like kids are going to, like that's how they're going to remember me as this ugly ogre, which didn't stop him from playing like a hideous Ant-Man in the movie The Ant Bully. <laughs> which he was an ant and a bully. That's a bad thing. No, no, so he wasn't. We don't have time for this, okay. Sam. We don't have time for a spiral down the ant He was the wizard who hole. turned the ant bully into an ant. Okay. Um, so the, the original... Next year, come back for our live special on the ant bully. We'll be right here. The original guy who was actually given the role was SNL veteran Chris Farley, who was cast and recorded most of his dialogue, but died in 1997 before finishing it. Mike Myers came in to finish the job and he had obviously had to re-record everything. So first of all, they had to re-record everything with Mike Myers. And then he decided, I want to make this Scottish. <laughs> so they had to reanimate everything, allegedly at a cost of $4 million. Wait, why do they have to reanimate? $4 million. <laughs> Mike Myers. Why does making him Scottish mean reanimating the whole thing? What, what, what are they saying? I am half Scottish. Differently. His lips move in different, like they have to do the lips again. And apparently he wanted to make his Scottish in tribute to his mom. <laughs> but that's weird because like Fat Bastard is also Scottish. <laughs> We don't know who that's in tribute to. Because uh, your mum's Scottish. She is, and she is here in the room. Hello, hello, mum. Hello, Jane. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't do an impression of her for a character called Fat Bastard, would you? <laughs> Absolutely not, never. But there's something... <laughs> there is something that feels right about Shrek being Scottish, and I don't know what that is. I, I, don't, I can't put my finger on that, but... It just feels right, and it's also, it's, it's Scottish, but it's not Scottish. It's like the midway point between classic Mike Myers and a Scottish accent. It's just the voice of Shrek. That's, that's all it is in my head. <laughs> it's the, the Shrek, 
Shrek sent. Shrek sent. <laughs> so a couple of animation points as well before we move on. Uh, it was the first computer animated feature to be made using a technique called shaping, where they actually built a Shrek skeleton and then built a Shrek musculature on top of the skeleton. Have and they ever released a picture of the Shrek skeleton? Uh, the, yeah, you can see, oh, I should have put that in the PowerPoint, you can see like the muscles like building up over the skeleton, a bit like a movie only me and Ben have seen called Fuzzbucket. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the, the thing that people might be more aware of is Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen. Okay, the, yeah, but also... Fuzzbucket, in the movie Fuzzbucket, basically Dr. Manhattan's himself into existence. It's insane. So then you put the skin over the muscles so that the muscles move realistically underneath the skin. And the other thing about the way this movie was animated was that people were taken off the Prince of Egypt if they failed. If they were seen as underperforming on Prince of Egypt, they were taken off and they got put on Shrek, a process referred to as getting Shreked. <laughs> They needed to check themselves before they shreked themselves, basically. Okay, should we get into it? Should we go to the swamp? Uh, yes. Um, yes. Yes. It's, it, this is me looking at the clock saying, it's time to head to it's the swamp. It's swamp time. time. It's swamp time, everyone. Can I get another round of the music, please? Thank you. See, a lot of people looking very uncomfortable while they do that. <laughs> I can't imagine why. So, Shrek, from its opening moments, announces itself as a full-on Disney parody. We're right in there with the storybook opening, with a princess book telling the story of Princess Fiona. Except this time, Shrek is reading that on the bog. <laughs> and before we know it, we're straight into the Smash Mouth. Well, watching this film again in the lineage of this podcast, I was like, well, what fairy tales is it riffing on? And I was like, okay, this feels like it's especially Sleeping Beauty meets Beauty and the Beast. I'm going to say like 80% Sleeping Beauty with the okay. medieval art style with, there's a dragon, a big purple dragon, and the princess being cursed and locked away in the tower is very Sleeping Beauty. But it's also a bit Beauty and the Beast. It's a transformation tale. It's the story of somebody who's cursed and the curse needs to be released and they need to kind of... It's sort of an inverse Beauty and the Beast tale. Straight away, going into Disney territory and then Shrek rips a page out of the book and wipes his arse with it. <laughs> How's that for subtlety? Off screen. Off screen, but it's made very clear. Yeah, it's obviously the Disney storybook opening, something we've covered many times. A lot of Disney movies open with that. And then just this direct kind of, not quite fourth wall, but this like reaching into it. And it's like, nope, you're not watching this. What a load of old flush. And then immediately the real kind of punch is some. <laughs> Which is a single syllable that you will see adorned on Sam's t-shirt today in honor of Smash Mouth. Some You don't even need to hear the body, just from the some you know exactly what you're in for. It is amazing. And, and people did at the time, because I think a lot of people think, which by the way, rest in peace, Steve Harwell, singer from Smash Mouth, died earlier this week. Some it's legendary, but it was already a hit. That's what people forget. A lot of people think of this as like the Shrek song, and I don't think Smash Mouth loved that, but <laughs> it was already a hit at the time. It was in Mystery Men. Yeah, it was in Mystery Men before it was on Shrek. The music video has the characters from Mystery Men. Ben Stiller. Yes. Uh, one of the Simpsons guys. Anyway, 
it was already a hit, and th there had been animated movies with original pop songs in them written by famous people before, right? Phil Collins in Tarzan, for example. And because that's original music that was made to be in this film, it doesn't feel like it's interrupting the world of Tarzan. It doesn't feel like it's disrupting the Disney text, right? But because people went into this film and like immediately what they hear is an instantly recognizable song that they already know that was already a hit that was in Mystery Men and Rat Race, I think, with their, I can't remember. They knew that, okay, this isn't your typical Disney film. That was what was new. That's what hadn't really been done before. There had been pop culture references, the genie in Aladdin, but having the film itself play hit songs that everyone already knew breaks the Disney thesis of the world, right? It interrupts it. It makes us think about the fact that we are watching a movie. If you hear a, a pop song in a movie set in the modern day, that's fine and normal. It just helps to characterize the part of the world that you're in or the kinds of characters that we're with, right? But if you hear a pop song in an animated movie, especially one that's set in the fantasy world, it kind of does the opposite and it makes us question the reality of what we're watching subconsciously. I don't think anyone's having existential crises <laughs> listening to All Star at the start of Shrek. To be fair, I think a lot of breakdowns will have probably been soundtracked by Smash Mouth's All Star. <laughs> and obviously, as you said, the thing that that syncs up with is literally like ripping up the book, tearing a page out of the book. I love Shrek overtly laughs at the true love's kiss, rips that single page out of the book, and the very next page of the book is the wedding. That I only noticed that this time around. These stories in traditional Disney form, it goes straight from the kiss, straight to the wedding. Right, and here, well, actually, here, actually, it, it, it does go straight from the kiss, straight to the wedding, but there is a lot more getting to know you time beforehand. The, the relationship, which I think we'll talk about a little bit more later, is, is more well characterized. Um, I mean, you know, like Beauty and the Beast and, and movies like that, we're already spending time with it. It's the true love's kiss, it's that falling love at first sight, which Shrek just does not believe in. And the movie doesn't necessarily disprove that as an idea completely, but it shows that it's questioning it. Yeah, and it's aligning Shrek with something else, isn't it? Because his name isn't printed on that book. His name is in the mud. I love the gooey, muddy Shrek logo. As a kid, I always loved There's something textural about the Shrek logo being swiped into the mud that I always loved. Yeah, and that's like an animation innovation as well. Animation innovation. Sounds like a Sherman Brothers song. And, um, but, you know, there's not, there's not much sludge in Toy Story. It's plastics. In Shrek, we've got all of these, not just the skin and the bodies, but all of these organic touches, uh, most of which are in the service of, like, toilet humor. But, yeah. Speaking of toilet humor, the moment when Shrek, like, cleans out his own sewage pipe is genuinely vile. <laughs> it hit me in a new way as an adult. I watched this for the first time in years. I watched this so, so much as a kid on VHS, just on a loop all the time. To the extent that when I was watching it back, I think this might be the film with the most lines stuck in my head of any film, which I hadn't really thought about until watching it again. But the, the Shrek cleaning out the sewage really got me. And I was counting down until the first fart joke kicked in. Two minutes. <laughs> Two minutes into the movie, we get a fart joke, we get a dead fish. Yeah, I'd never seen this movie before, to be honest, and it was, I was disgusted. <laughs> I don't know how they let kids watch this. Ban this sick filth. So we're then into more fairy tale trope stuff because we get a bit more of an introduction to Shrek in a scene that feels like a direct 
nod to the Kill the Beast sequence from Beauty and the Beast with the men, with the pitchforks, chasing Shrek down. He turns the tables on them. Also gives a little bit of an introduction to what an ogre is and what an ogre is all about or said to be all about that we're going to maybe learn more about him through the course of the film. And from there we have this moment where all of the fairy tale creatures in the forest that we have seen through all these different individual Disney movies are suddenly sharing the same space. It's the Shrek fairy tale universe is there in an instant. We see the dwarfs being chained up and taken away. We see Geppetto trying to trade off Pinocchio. Presumably he has realized that Pinocchio is absolutely horrifying and wants him out of the house. But what if he danced like Michael Jackson? Would that make him better? No, get him gone. In the bin. <laughs> and uh, we get Donkey being hit by Tinkerbell magic and, and flying. Who's the little guy in the red pointy Pet Shop Boys hat? Who's that? I don't know, dwarf. No, he's <laughs> definitely Elf. separate to them. Uh, I don't know, he's a little little magic man. I am removing the Shrek book from the table. I feel like... Uh, or possibly, I don't know, like... Rumpelstiltskin? There's a couple of different Rumpelstiltskins right. in the Shrek universe. Uh, they change Rumpelstiltskin's appearance movie by movie. Maybe it's a little Rumpelstiltskin? Maybe so. I mean, I think the thing that I realized watching this back is that so much of what happens in that moment, as we've discussed all the way through this podcast, so many of the early films I thought I'd seen, and I kind of haven't. And what I think is, I just saw Shrek, and I'm like, Pinocchio's nose grows, Tinkerbell does magic and people fly. All of these references... You know, it's drawing on some of the biggest cornerstones of Disney's legacy. Yeah, I mean, that's what we were talking about like, in the movie Pinocchio Nose Grows Once. Well, like five times, but in quick succession. And it, it's things like the. I mean, this obviously didn't invent, it didn't popularize the idea of Pinocchio's nose growing. But it really like boils all of these characters down to their simplest forms and then riffs jokes on them. And it's a similar kind of strategy intertextually to um, Toy Story and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and then later Wreck-It Ralph. These movies are all very similar because the main characters are new. The characters we are going to be doing things with who are going to evolve and going to have conflict and are going to drive this story are new original characters. And we populate the world with characters that people already know, toys that kids have played with, video games you might have played, cartoon characters you might have seen, and characters from fairy tales in order to help the audience to understand what the thesis of this world is. So we can tell that you could have done this and indeed, the original uh, picture book did not have any other fairy tale creatures in. You could have done this without it and just have it's a parody of, of a fairy tale, right? It, with all original characters. But having those other characters in there helps to position it in relation to, yes, the original stories, but also, of course, Disney. Almost all of these characters, Disney have put them on screen in the past. And also, crucially, these are intertexts that children know. Toys computer games, cartoon characters, fairy tales. Kids already know that. You can trust that even your youngest audience are going to understand what you are parodying here, even though I'm sure there's people in this room who were young enough to have seen Shrek before they saw any of the Disney movies that it's taken the piss out of. Uh, whereas, for example, if you made a movie about um, fish that parodied The Godfather and Goodfellas... That doesn't sound advisable. I don't know who would do that. No, I don't know who that's for, right? A kid's gonna get all of these references to, let's say, the untouchables. I don't think so. With, like, I don't know, I'm just spitballing here, a puffer fish that has Martin Scorsese's eyebrows? <laughs> no, no, too much Diet Coke has been taken to come up with that idea. 
I have a question about one of the references, which I guess isn't directly Disney, because in the Disney Robin Hood, Robin Hood is a fox that seemingly everybody is attracted to. In this, he is a human man. Why is he French? I say this <laughs> with my Nottingham pride. Why is Robin Hood French? Okay, so there's the, there's the clever answer and there's like the dumb answer. I like the dumb answer. <laughs> so, like, you, you could say in various versions of the Robin Hood story, he is like a nobleman who has decided to take up the cause of the poor. And usually he's a Saxon nobleman, but there are versions where he's a Norman nobleman. So he, there are interpretations of that where uh, Robin Hood might have had a French accent. But I think, basically, this is just like a Pepe Le Pew joke, right? Like, he is a, he's a horny, disgusting womanizer, and he, that's what... Uh, uh, um, uh, and and therefore some people somebody somebody might think that those characteristics might apply to people who are French <laughs> but not us I, I just I, I don't think as a kid I ever questioned why Robin Hood was French it was just like oh yeah there's French Robin Hood it's, it, it's Vincent Cassel from La Hen that's, that's Vincent Cassell. <laughs> yeah. That is bonkers. So let's talk about some characters who are integral to this movie, by which I mean, of course, Shrek himself and Donkey. This is primarily for a, a bunch of its runtime. It's like a two-hander. It's a buddy movie. Obviously, Fiona becomes a much bigger part of the film in the second half, which we'll get into. But Shrek and Donkey, they are paired up very, very quickly. And these two performances are amazing i think there's a reason why the mike myers shrek voice works as well as it does i cannot imagine shrek with like an american accent or a traditional sort of canadian uh mike myers accent i'm really glad he does a voice him and eddie murphy together that is just dynamite and it, it's it's great because you instantly like both of these characters because they are so funny but there's also real substance to the characters immediately. I don't quite know how it does it by so quickly establishing these are characters you like, but these are all the things about them, and also here's a bunch of gags on top. It's it's kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the casting and the way that these characters, these actors perform is really interesting. So you've got... Mike Myers, who, like, I can't even picture Mike Myers' speaking voice, right? So it's easy to say they've cast, like, actors to play versions of themselves and to bring their own skills, you know, the lesson that they learned with Robin Williams and Aladdin, for example. And I think Eddie Murphy does that. Eddie Murphy does play a lot of characters, but he's also very well known as a stand-up comedian and very well known playing characters based on his own persona in movies as well and that's what we get here whereas mike myers is a character guy right he almost exclusively is known as someone who does silly accents so it's interesting that they've cast him not to bring necessarily the intertextual cachet of mike myers in a way that eddie murphy is doing but to embody this character it's an interesting contrast because we've got donkey doing a very contemporary american accent obviously an african-american accent which makes him and he's the one who's making most of the pop culture references he's singing all of the songs and stuff like that so he feels like he's come from the contemporary united states whereas shrek has this like oldie timey european sound um it's, it's, it's a technique used really interestingly in How to Train Your Dragon, where the older Vikings have Scottish accents and all of their kids have American accents. And the kids are given this like sort of high school comedy dynamic, which contrasts with the high fantasy Viking world. Again, Vikings, not Scottish, typically. 
it sounds oddly timey. So I think that's what Shrek's going with here. He feels like a character who is native to this world and is expected to behave in a certain way and for a lot of the movie lives up to that, even if that's not necessarily how he feels. Whereas Donkey is... The, the character who interjects, the character who's come from contemporary America to kind of change Shrek in a way, the character who doesn't fit in this world and is the first one to really break down all of these stereotypes by trying to get through to Shrek and make him be himself. Something you mentioned there is that Donkey does a lot of singing of contemporary songs in this movie. Again, watching this as a kid, this introduced me to so many songs, which we'll get into a little bit more later on. But there are so many parts of this where like Donkey sings a bit of a song. And then to me, like that is just what that song is. Donkey singing, I'm all alone. There's no one here beside me. My problems have all gone. There's no one to deride me. But you gotta have friends. That is where the song ends to me. The song is like 20 seconds long. That is it. There are no more lyrics. I had to look this up, and it was actually quite difficult to track down even what this song is. It's a Bette Midler song that yep. she sang on stage once. <laughs> well, Iggy Murphy's obviously a fan. And we'll get, I'm on the road again, and um, you got to, got to try a little tenderness. Yeah, and it's it, like, how does Donkey know these songs? And we, we don't ask because this is a world where, again, the hypothesis is there are no boundaries. Anything from the real world can perforate this world. And that's the thing that Disney didn't do. It's a thing that Walt didn't do. There's a couple of little gags here and there that maybe were more relevant to people living in the 1940s than it was today. But generally, if Pinocchio started singing Try a Little Tenderness, I don't know, um, it would feel way... And also a more contemporary example, if, if Aladdin started singing Try a Little Tenderness, it would be like, wait, what... For most of this movie, this is a character who's been established as living in his own world. But we're breaking that down now suddenly. I don't understand what this world is. I don't know if I believe in it anymore. Genie, it makes sense because he is a being of phenomenal cosmic power. Maybe he could have seen some Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and some Jack Nicholson films so he knows who these people are. But um, most Disney characters don't do that. They found a way to get it in in that movie. In Shrek... There are no boundaries, really. There are characters who play the roles more closely than others. But sorry, I can just imagine. Space. I can just imagine Jeffrey Katzenberg just like diet coked out of his mind, saying to the animators, "In Shrek, there are no boundaries." <laughs> Someone restrain him. Yeah, so it, it's. We'll t I think we'll talk a bit more later about some of the specific ways in which this parodies Disney. But it's already pushing back against Disney because it is breaking down the established rules of the, what the world of an animated movie is. Looney Tunes have been doing that forever. Cartoons on TV were doing that all through the 1990s, right? But they were short. They weren't asking us to care for these characters for 90 minutes or more. This is a movie that is asking us to do that, and it's facing us up front with this thesis on its world that... I don't, like, nothing really matters and yet it does nothing makes sense and yet you're going to believe in it anywhere yeah because with both Shrek and Donkey they are outsider characters I guess the main thing here is that here are two characters who ordinarily would not be at the centre of this film and let's put them at the centre of a story in this world and as much fun as you're having with them you also feel the roles that they're each trapped in. Obviously, Donkey, I think, is much more vocal about it, and you see his loneliness. You instantly feel sorry for him, and you want him to strike up that friendship with Shrek because you see how much he needs that. 
Shrek, though, you also see that loneliness in him and you see his self-isolation and you see the sort of bliss that he thinks he's living in actually isn't the way that he wants to live. I think there's all this stuff, especially in the opening 10, 15 minutes of the movie, that just gets to the heart of what is going on with these characters. And you know what really breaks Shrek down and, and, and makes him seem likable? It's not even necessarily all of the pathos that he's given. For me, it's his dad jokes. Because <laughs> he's like such a grumpy guy. This is something that really hit me when I watched it yesterday. He's such like a grumpy, grouchy guy. But then like sometimes he'll just be like, oh, maybe he's compensating for something. <laughs> or, or like um, there's the bit where they see the, uh, the, the castle, the dragon's castle for the first time. And he, he says, um, oh, sure, it's big. But have you seen the location? <laughs> and he just he does a little snicker to himself. And that's great. That's lovely. Because those jokes aren't funny. A lot of the jokes in the movie are funny. But those jokes are there for Donkey to be like, all right, okay. And, and, and it humanizes Shrek. Because it's like, oh, he does find some things funny. He's just got a dad humor. <laughs> and yeah, both of these vocal performances, I mean... Every single thing Eddie Murphy says is just amazing and cracked me up even again watching this last night. But as a kid, uh, like I think me and my brother and my sister basically spent all of our childhoods just saying, I like that boulder. That is a, a nice boulder. boulder. <laughs> or this is the part where you run away. It's like for Shrek and for Donkey, it's just stacked with incredible lines that I can only ever hear in those specific voices. And in the morning... I'm making waffles. <laughs> I love that. We should do that sometime. <laughs> yeah. I'll never have waffles. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He's getting some Shrek dad jokes going. Should we talk about Fiona? Yeah. Fiona's a really interesting one because obviously she has a big transformation literally through the course of the film as well. But as she's set up, it kind of compounds my thesis that she is basically meant to be Sleeping Beauty because we have that sequence where Lord Farquaad is asking the magic mirror uh, for potential suitors. You get a whole kind of blind date riff. And uh, we have a couple of options here. We have Cinderella, a mentally abused shut-in from a kingdom far, far away. Her hobbies include cooking and cleaning for her two evil sisters, that is strong. We get Snow White, a cape-wearing girl from a land of fantasy. Although she lives with seven other men, she's not easy. <laughs> there, are, there are some eyebrow-raising jokes in this. Um, just kiss her dead frozen lips and find out what a live wire she is. Then the last one should be Sleeping Beauty, but it's not Sleeping Beauty. It's Fiona. That, for me, was like, okay, that is who she that is. She takes that role, yeah. And then she pretends to be asleep when Shrek gets there. Right, because there's this whole thing going through this film of who the characters appear to be is not really who they are on the inside. You see that especially with Shrek, but I thought it was interesting on Fiona's part that it's not just that she becomes an ogre at night, it's that she, when Shrek first turns up, she like is trying to get herself in position so that she can be perfect for him to kiss her. So already she is like trying to act, trying to live up to something, trying to pretend to be something. So you get three different perspectives from these three main characters on the fairy tale itself. You get Donkey, who doesn't know the script. He's just completely off script. You get Shrek, who knows the script, but he doesn't really care. He's kind of half-heartedly living up to these stereotypes. And then you get Fiona, who knows the script and really cares. And she wants to embody the role of a of a Disney princess, a fairy tale princess, but a Disney princess because she thinks that's the only way that she can be happy. And what she has to learn, obviously, is that it's not. 
Yeah, there's a whole lot going on with Fiona as a character. And I think especially as the film continues, it gets into some really emotionally nuanced territory. I felt really caught up in that moment where she's talking to Donkey as an ogre and basically saying, like, I can't be this version of myself out in the world. And the way that Shrek overhears her and thinks that she's talking about him when she is first rescued and sees Shrek is an ogre and she's like, no, 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 this is all wrong. She's compounding all the things that Shrek thinks about himself, why he is not worthy to be at the center of this story, why he's not worthy to be with the princess. But there's also that layer that she's talking about herself. She has internalized that narrative of this is what an ogre is. I can't be an ogre and is sort of projecting that onto Shrek. There's there's some really interesting stuff happening with who these characters are and who they feel they need to be. Right, so Shrek needs to learn to love himself just as much as Fiona needs to learn to love herself as an ogre. And it's also, I think, quite refreshing that we don't get loads of um, her hand-wringing about like, oh, I quite fancy this Shrek guy, but boy, is he ugly or whatever, right? It's not really about that. It's more just about I am insecure in what I really am. And that means I, almost like I don't feel like I deserve to be with this guy who will actually care about me, I need to be with the guy with the status, with the power, because that's the only way that I can be happy. But of course, you know, we've mentioned many times that in Disney movies, typically, uh, Pinocchio and Beauty and the Beast being the major examples, when characters end the movie, characters who've taken on shapes other than that of human, they revert to human, even though it's the supernatural characters, the beastly characters who Disney propagates in their merchandising and stuff because human prince looks weird. <laughs> uh, not the human prince, uh, who is great. And, <laughs> um, and always the human looks being informally known as prince. Yes, but the... <laughs> well, dark. But the uh, I didn't mean it in that the, way. <laughs> the prince in the movie Beauty and the Beast as a human. But Fiona and Shrek are allowed to retain their ogre bodies, and it's Fiona as an ogre who you've got on your T-shirt. It's Fiona as an ogre who you see in the theme parks and the merchandise and everything else. And of course, they go further with that in Shrek 2, where they are both given the opportunity, including Shrek, to have human form and, and kind of reject it again. So it, it's really, it's be yourself again, which is, is not something that Disney have ever shied away from as a moral. That's your standard moral. But it's, it's be yourself no matter who you are. With Disney, it's be yourself as long as that self conforms to what society expects of you. <laughs> and in Shrek and other DreamWorks movies, um, like you know, Mega Mind, Monsters vs. Aliens, it's be your freaky self. To an extent, we'll talk later about is this movie as subversive as it, it likes to think it is, but that's at least the moral that we're given at the end. It doesn't actually matter what you look like. Yeah, there's a lot going on with that. Uh, it, it ultimately gets to a place of, if none of this stuff mattered, like there is no reason that Fiona and Shrek can't be together. They kind of get to that place of decoding all of those things that mean that they can ultimately be together. Something that you mentioned is that Donkey is the character who primarily gets in on all the pop cultural references. He is the one who is mostly doing the, the breaking of the fourth wall and bringing in stuff from our world. Fiona gets a little bit of that in, I'm going to say the sequence that has maybe aged less well than most of the things in the film, which is the Matrix parody, <laughs> which I love me some Matrix. And I know Sam doesn't, and it hurts me every time I remember that. <laughs> 
But that Matrix parody, at the time, I bet was just the absolute bomb. I remember thinking that was hilarious. I had seen The Matrix at the age of eight and understood none of it. <laughs> but I knew what that meant, and I knew that that was funny, that the princess was basically being Trinity from The Matrix in that sequence where she fights back against Robin Hood and the Merry Men. But as you watch it now, it feels so random. It feels like it comes from nowhere. Why? Why? What is... What, why? I, just, I don't know what your problem is, Ben. Princess Fiona liberated a generation of women. <laughs> Get her in Barbie land, stats. <laughs> because she... She... You think she's just a princess. She lives in a tower. So she's lovey-dovey. She, she goes to sleep. She speaks in thousand and woodsts. But <laughs> she can do kung fu. She knows kung fu. She knows martial arts. Her, her body is a weapon. It, I mean, is it riffing on Charlie's Angels as well? I guess is that an intertextual oh, factor. Cameron, Cameron Diaz, Diaz as yeah. like she is known for doing big actiony fight stuff on screen as well. Maybe? I, I thought this might have been being before Charlie's Angels. I don't know when that came out. Are there any human IMDb's in the room? No worries. Uh, it's around the same time. I can't. So I don't know about the movie Charlie's Angels. I don't think the song Independent Woman Part One by Destiny's Ooh. Child came out before Shrek. That doesn't feel right. I, th I feel like it was maybe 2001. It was maybe the same year. We'll, we'll go let's, with that. Let's move on. Because, um, <laughs> of course, the other thing that she does is she burps. Yes. Well, and she learns to become more comfortable letting her, like, sort of ogre side out through her time with Shrek. And I think some of it, the burping and the eating of the rats and all of that, is, like, a clue that she's an ogre inside because burping is what ogres do. But the, the kung fu fighting, that's not really an ogre thing. That's, that's just a girl boss thing. That's just like a, that's a strong female character thing. She has to be able to kick people in the head. But she's only kicking the merry men in the head. She's not kicking Lord Farquhar in the head. She's not really putting up much of a fight at the end of the movie. She, and this happens in pretty much every Shrek movie. Princess Fiona is set up as this badass. And she loses her agency in the climax, right? Every time. It, it, so like Shrek 3... There's this whole thing where all Fiona and all the princesses get captured by Prince Charming and they do this whole escape sequence and Led Zeppelin's playing and they kick all kinds of ass and then just immediately get captured and then Shrek has to come in and save the day again. So it's like she has the ability, the fact that we're shown that she has the ability to protect herself and then so very rarely does when it comes down to the crunch just kind of throws all of that work in the toilet when it comes to like giving us an actual strong female character with the agency i would say i mean i think that moment like i said is one of the things that's aged less well about this film because it does feel a bit random the fiona bit that has aged incredibly and i was laughing so hard at this when i was re-watching it last night is fiona trying to do the princess thing when she's sort of twirling around the forest and singing to herself singing with the bird until the bird explodes <laughs> and then the match cut from the three eggs in the nest to the eggs being cooked on the platter. She explodes a bird and cooks its eggs. It is amazing. That absolutely cracked me up. And again, it's very Sleeping Beauty because there's that Sleeping Beauty moment with Cosplay Owl. I don't know if you remember that scene where it is just Aurora kind of twirling and singing in the woods to herself. I really don't want to think about Cosplay Owl getting exploded. <laughs> no, no, not get Cosplay him. Owl. Cosplay, well, he would get exploded. Getting blood Cosplay all over Owl. his cape. Oh, <laughs> that, that is dark. <laughs> and his prospective children cooked and eaten for Aurora and for the three fairies. Yeah. One, one egg for each fairy. 
I, I but that 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 is at least funny. I brush up against jokes that are just like old person does skateboarding or whatever. Like scientist does breakdancing. Um, princess does kung fu. I don't think that's very funny. Where it's just like they wouldn't do this thing. Um, that's for different people. But I think that the bird explodey thing that's a good punchline. And there's a really lovely scene between human Fiona and Shrek where they sort of spend this lovely day together. They There's this montage where they're making their way back to Duloc and they're eating the cobweb filled with spiders like it's candy floss. I think I might have a Disneyversity legend from this movie if we're allowing one. Can we allow a Disneyversity legend from this film? <laughs> what, what do we think? I'm ignoring the person who said no. We're going with a yes. Very Let's do that again. What no. do we think, people? Yes! Excellent. I love this power. Um, the frog that gets blown up into a balloon. I, I'm, I don't know what it is. I just love that so much. And, and the, little, the little note on the soundtrack where you get the... Like a little, like... I don't know, I don't know what that is. Like a little, it, sounds like a mouth, it sounds like a Ben Travis mouth trumpet. It's a classic... Um, that song, obviously, by the band Eels. Correct. Who are the band who have appeared on the most individual Shrek movie soundtracks? Wow. So they're like the real Shrek soundtrack. Yes. Low key. They're on one, two, and four, and that's because they were signed to DreamWorks Records. Right. They're on the Geffen payroll. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, I I love that frog balloon. You love an animated frog. I do. He's not all timey. He's not wearing uh, clothes. He's not on a <laughs> unicycle. But can we allow the frog balloon into the Disney? Yeah, Disney definitely. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to do the fanfare, make it official. <laughs> Welcome to the canon, frog uh, balloon. When he comes to the Disneyversity Legend parties, I think he's going to get the cold shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> he is going to be dancing on the ceiling, bobbing away up at the top of the room. Now that we've done a Disneyversity Legend... I'm not sure that there's a TDLF in this movie, but there absolutely are TDLFs in the wider Shrekverse, especially once you get into the sequels. I don't know about you, I have like a visceral dislike of both the Shrek babies, the ogre babies, there's just something about them that makes my skin crawl, but nothing tops that like the, the donkey dragon babies. I know the joke is that they're so such a freaky combination, but I I cannot abide that, Sam. I cannot abide it. Dronkies. Is that the official name? That's Dronkies. the official name. Dron- which is, is one of the worst words. As you say it, your mouth just feels horrible. Dronkies. And of course, the babies are called... Bonkies? <laughs> Fergus, Farkle, and Felicia. I don't, don't feel great about any of this. Farkle. 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 We could get locked in this for hours. Yeah, they are not in this movie, but they are absolutely TDLF. Has to be noted, they are an abomination. <laughs> so I want to get into something as we sort of head towards the end of our discussion of the film itself that we teed up before, which is how subversive is Shrek, actually? Because it very much announces itself from the beginning of like, we're not like Disney. We're ripping up the rule book and wiping our asses with it. And like here, we're going to take the piss out of all the fairy tale creatures. The thing that I was so struck by watching this again is how well defined the emotionality of this film is and how sincere it is and how 
you have loads of jokes up front. You wait two minutes for a fart joke, but you only have to wait 12 minutes for a really sincere moment, which is when Shrek has his solo dinner at home. And there are bits of jokes in there, like he pulls an entire candle's worth of wax out of his ear. But there's a real like pathos to that moment. You see that he it thinks he's happy in that situation, eating alone, but he's not. And you know, you start to feel those feelings very early on of, we want more for Shrek. We want Shrek to be a happier version of himself. And yeah, the, the actual structure of this film is very clean. Like exactly half an hour in is when act one ends and act two begins when they go off on the quest. Again, exactly half an hour later is when act two ends and act three begins. It's so structurally clean, plays by all the rules. I actually don't think this film is that subversive at all. It's not in the sense that, yeah, it doesn't rip up the Disney rulebook in terms of story. Certainly it is trying to make people feel something. And I think it kind of has to work. I, I don't know if it works. It's just a straight up comedy all the way through with no heart to it. It's a big part of what this film is. Like the score, the actual... Um, Da, 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 is so beautiful and could be just ripped out of a Disney movie. And yes, that is used to kind of like parody when it's interrupted by Smash Mouth, but also it's used at appropriate moments to make us feel something for these characters as well. And like I've said, I don't think it, it really subverts the Disney princess formula on gender lines as much as it thinks it does. But it is still coming at Disney, not least because of all of the, the kind of references and intertextual stuff and, and music and everything like that that breaks down the barriers of this world. But also, I think it, it kind of is, in, in lots of specific ways, attacking Disney as a company and their like process and their ideology. So, for example, we've not really talked about Lord Farquaad, different from Farkle. Equally freakish. Yeah. So, Farquaad, as we kind of teed up earlier on, is the Michael Eisner figure in a lot of ways. He is representative of the Disney company. And it's, you know, Duloc is the obvious example of that, right? Duloc is a perfect place. And it has a little, it's a small world style sort of animatronic performance. We recently went to Disneyland Paris and went on It's a Small World and we're singing the Duloc song <laughs> as we queued up for the ride. Which feels like it should be illegal. <laughs> It's got the turnstiles, it's got the Farquaad, like, big-haired mascot guy. And I think Farquaad's approach to the fairy tale creatures, that is kind of a, a, a take on what Disney does to these fairy tales. Like, the crux of what Farquaad is trying to do is he wants the kingdom to be perfect, he wants the story to be perfect. Perfect, perfect is the word that he keeps repeating. And that's kind of what Disney have often been accused of doing to these stories, obviously to the old, freaky, European fairy tale stories, but also to stories that different cultures hold really close to their heart, like Chinese and, and Greek mythology and, um, and you know the, the Arabian Nights tales and everything like that. These different cultures, they take all of these stories and, and these peoples and sand all the edges off and get rid of the freaky stuff to fit them into this perfect formula. And that's kind of what Farquaad is representative of. And I think, so that's one reason why none of the fairy tale characters look that much like their Disney equivalents. 
the other reason is copyright. <laughs> but it's, I think it's because those characters are meant to be more closely aligned with the original versions of those characters, the freakier versions, the grim versions, the Perot versions, right? The novel Pinocchio, um, who, who is awful. They don't have this kind of copyright Disney style because we're meant to see them as generic because these are the edges, these guys are the edges that Disney have tried to sand off. And that's why Farquaad wants all these freaks out of his perfect kingdom. And you get this contrast in the setting of the swamp, which is full of like rough edges and curves and gloop and gunge and poo. Mm. <laughs> but also looks kind of beautiful and appealing. Like the sun shines on that poo in a, a <laughs> in a really aesthetic way. Uh, whereas Duloc is all straight lines, empty, clean, sanded down, perfect. And I think that's the angle at which it's attacking Disney from. You want everything to be the same, both stories and people, and we're letting stories and people be different to an extent. Yeah, because I think that is where the biggest subversive element comes in, which is that obviously we have this whole thing about true love's true form, and for Fiona being with Shrek, that is being an ogre. She is allowed to stay as an ogre. I think in a Disney version of this story, if that could ever exist, the spell at the end would turn them both into humans. And we wouldn't remember them that way, but that would have to be the sort of resolution to that story. She says, when we find out that she's an ogre, I'm a princess and this is not how a princess is meant to look. And I think that is where the subversion comes in. I said at the top of the discussion, it is a joke, but there's also something true to the fact that Shrek rips out the page of the book that is the true love's first kiss, and then very instantly we're into the marriage. We're into just that relationship is a thing. And I think the most subversive thing about this story is that it actually is about finding true love in a very real way. It's not about fairy tale love. It's about real love, about the fact that over the course of their journey together, these two learn things about each other and are allowed to be themselves around each other. It's not just like, oh, you're meant to be with him. You have a kiss. That is it. The deal is sealed. It starts with Shrek laughing at the idea of true love's kiss, laughing at the idea of a happily ever after. But the film actually isn't about Shrek taking down the idea of a fairy tale romance. It's him learning that he deserves one too. Everybody deserves that fairy tale romance. Yeah, so it, it it makes an interesting point about this, you know, you now you don't look you need to look like how a princess or a prince need to look, but it retains elements of you are still going to behave like how these characters would behave. And that is nice and it means we do get this very well developed love story. It's still like a day. It's still you can like it's maybe maybe two days, but it is well drawn. It's a good romantic comedy as much as anything else, right? A kind of comedy of manners between these two clashing personalities. But um, yeah, we do still have they get married, they enter into the you know heterosexual convention of marriage and drive off into the sunset, and then the next one they go and meet the parents and all of that. And throughout the series, they struggle against, they push against social conventions, but they always end up assimilate and they always end up becoming part of that world and just being a bit grouchy about it and a bit abrasive about it but they don't really push the envelope too far in terms of their behavior and the social structures within which they operate the thing that it does so well is that you get the resolution at the church with lord farquaad being eaten by the dragon fiona and shrek stay together the the spell is fulfilled and then it's so quick, we are instantly into the dance party at the end, straight into I'm a Believer, no messing around. Uh, 
I have to say, I, one of my favorite donkey lines is when they interrupt the wedding and he's building up the try a little tenderness moment and the delivery, the Eddie Murphy delivery of Mother Fletchery already said it. That is <laughs> incredible. And it's like, I feel like 30 seconds, a minute from there and we're into I'm a Believer, we're into the wedding party. And have you ever been able to do the Eddie Murphy riff on I'm a Believer? The... I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. Oh, that is the best I've ever done that. <laughs> my point was going to be, I was never able, like, again, me and my brother and my sister as kids, I think, spent half the time running around the house going, I believe, I believe, I believe, and not being able to do it. And now, uh, all along, the destiny was here. It led me to this moment. I was going to say, like, what do you mean? Have you ever been able to do it? Like, did you get your license yet? <laughs> I think I've earned it now. Have you been to class? <laughs> um, got your unbelief degree. I believe, 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 I believe. Ah, believe. <laughs> that was so slick. That was excellent. <laughs> yes, a round of applause. I think that is one of the most important things that this film sends you out on an absolute high. It gives you the happy ending you need and then just like slaps on two minutes of pure joy. And that's one of the biggest ways in which this film was influential because my god this was how animated movies ended for a long time <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's bringing back that idea of the pop song there's not many diegetic pop songs in the first Shrek at least there's not that many pop songs that exist and are played within the world of the film apart from all the ones Donkey sings a cappella. so he could have just improvised that he could have written Try a Little Tenderness but um, this one is, is played by a band and all the characters are dancing along and part of the function of these songs yes it, it kind of alienates the audience in a sense because we're thinking about how it doesn't make sense how it's anachronistic in this world but it also brings you into it. It helps you draw connections between things that are happening in the movie and things that are happening, have happened to you in your life. You may have danced to I'm a Believer at a wedding party. And also, crucially, it's a song that adults will know from the 1960s, covered by a band that kids will know, Smash Mouth. <laughs> <laughs> has anyone ever intoned it that way? Smash Mouth. Smash <laughs> So it, it, it's, it's kind of crossing that age divide as well. It's a song that everyone can relate to in different ways. It's drawing you in at the end. And again, Shrek doesn't really break the fourth wall all that much, but here we've got the characters almost looking at the camera, inviting you into this world to celebrate with them. And, and the rules don't apply. We've got like some of the henchmen, the villains are like dancing with them. And that, that always happens in these dance party endings. Any character, no matter who they are, hero or villain, is going to join in with the dance in some way. So yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a way of reaching out to the audience at the end and saying like, you're at Shrek's wedding party as well. The most jarring thing though is that every time I watched this as a kid, I, I maybe saw it in the cinema, but we had it on VHS. I watched it over and over and over on VHS. I'm watching it on streaming last night and it not ending with the Shrek in the Swamp karaoke dance party <laughs> felt so wrong. I was like scrolling to the end of the credits, like surely it's here. It just, it just has to be part of the film. That two and a half minute karaoke dance party which again is like two lines of a song onto the next song that is where the song ends for me those are those specific songs how, that's how they sound is just one of it's a cornerstone of my childhood that's why you need to invest in physical media <laughs> <laughs> if anybody has a vhs of shrek please find me after the it's, show it's on the dvd it's on, on the, the DVD. dvd it's on the special features um starts with billy joel of could do a lot does. worse than that uh into madonna i could go on um, Baby Got Back. I mean, this was obviously the first time I'd heard most of these songs. Um, Baby Got Back, man, that was life-changing. <laughs> Which, as we all know, ends with, you get 
feelings. <laughs> and pops up again in Shark Tale, where it's like the baddies are having a meeting, and it's like Godfather style music on the soundtrack, and then it's like record scratch, and it's like a record that we're playing on, and it starts doing, I like big butts, and I cannot lie. And then Robert De Niro's like, get that off or whatever. And then his henchman, who is an octopus called Luca, voiced by someone from The Sopranos, says my favorite line in the movie Shark Tale, <laughs> big butts. <laughs> That was worth that diversion, wasn't it? <laughs> you have single-handedly ensured that we're definitely doing Shark Tale next time we do one of these. Okay, then. What I'm going to need is, once again, a little bit of music from you guys. Can I get a... Thank you very much. Lovely stuff. That brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and see the weird and wonderful stuff that didn't make the movie. Sam, as you mentioned, there is a Shrek book by William Stieg, Stieg, William Stieg, I'm going to say. <laughs> How similar or different is that to the film? We've got a couple of minutes. Um, oh, read by Stanley Tucci. <laughs> read by Stanley Tucci. I'm going to get the audiobook. I was going to sing my song about Stanley Tucci that I wrote, but I don't think we've got time. I'll sing you it in the lobby later on. <laughs> that is a threat. My girlfriend already knows it. She's over there. So, that's Shrek. Shrek has parents in the book. Oh, there is parents. They are freaky. The, the style of these drawings looks very Quentin Blakey. It, I think it's a Stig original. Uh, but yeah, a very similar style. And he has parents. It is said that he hatched. He was hatched. What, so, like from an egg? From a Shrek egg. So theoretically, somebody could have exploded Shrek's parents, taken the Shrek eggs and cooked <laughs> the Shrek eggs. Is what you're saying? Maybe that's what happened. Because you never see them in the movie. Uh, but in, in, in the book, they kick him out of the swamp to fend for himself. And the film is basically just him wandering around the woods aimlessly for a bit, trying to find his path in life. So Shrek in the book, the thing you've got to know about him is he's an absolute tank. Right? He's, he's like kind of Chuck Norris meets Superman. Um, so here's, here's a line. By the time he toddled... Shrek could spit flame a full 99 yards. Oh! Oh my god, we've got a picture of him going like full Godzilla on it. And god. vent smoke from either ear. Any snake dumb enough to bite him instantly got convulsions and died. Whoa, this is the most metal book ever made. Th there he is, oh with laser who, eyes. Who? He has murdered someone and is like cooking a small plate of food with his laser vision? <laughs> He's stolen that guy's chicken. And the, the laser eyes are not mentioned in the text. That, that was just for the, for the, for the pictures. <clears throat> and then there's this bit where... Um, oh! I'm, okay, I'm gonna... This is Shrek, like, drinking, eating a bolt of lightning out of the sky? That so, is rad. I'm gonna read the dialogue, or the, the, the text from this scene. Apologies, because this is... Wow. <laughs> Fat raindrops began sizzling on Shrek's hot knob. <laughs> I feel like possibly knob meant something different in America. Because <laughs> that's not what we're seeing here. Um... And then it says, lightning fired his fiercest bolt straight at Shrek's head. Shrek gobbled it, belched some smoke, and grinned. <laughs> Shrek is invincible in this. It's incredible. He should have busted out some of these moves in the wrestling sequence in the film. <laughs> so he's wandering around aimlessly. He meets a witch. He fights a dragon. There is a donkey. Okay. Yeah, a little bit derpy. <laughs> and he rides the donkey. And Ooh, the, the donkey looks so sad. <laughs> The donkey takes him 
This is, book is like 20 pages long. The donkey doesn't get much play. The donkey takes him to his, his destiny, which is to meet this princess. Uh, and the, the thing about the princess is she's as ugly as he is. So she's not an ogre. Well, actually, Shrek isn't an ogre. They didn't call him an ogre what? in the book. Yeah, it's Shrek just, is not an ogre in the book, Shrek. Just a big green dude <laughs> with, a, with a hot knob. <laughs> Whatever that was supposed to mean. <laughs> so, the, the, like, the don't do the whole Fiona is beautiful and then she's ugly thing. It's just, she is, quote, as ugly as Shrek is. No offense to her. And it's like, oh, we've finally met our perfect match. Let's get married, which they do. And the wedding is officiated by a crocodile. Oh, <laughs> this rules. <laughs> Again, no setup, no mention of the crocodile in the, in the text. This is just... This is just who's performing the ceremony. Sam, when you get married, I need you and Lydia to wear this exact outfit. I need, I need you to have a cravat and be holding a cactus. I need Lyd's veil has to be covered in spiders. And hate that. If you can't hire a crocodile to officiate, I will come up with a robe like that. In that fantastic dress that the crocodiles wear. That's beautiful. What a look. Is that, does that wrap us up on the book? Uh, yeah. <laughs> enough of this enough of this nonsense let's do a very quick whiz through some reviews what did critics say at the time about Shrek well the, f the first thing that you have to remember about Shrek is that it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in competition for the Palm Door <laughs> did it the, the Palm Doga it was right there um, so alongside uh, I don't know Mulholland Drive um, <laughs> M Michael Anakir's The Piano Teacher and Moulin Rouge and it, it lost to an Italian film that I have not heard of called The Sun's Room. The Sun Dies. Right. So it's very sad. I am about to go to the Toronto Film Festival and I hope I end up stumbling into a double bill as mad as Shrek and Mulholland Drive. That is my new aim. Uh, so it didn't, it, yeah, so it didn't win the Palme d'Or, but it did win the first Oscar for Best Picture, the Best Animated oh, Feature. Shrek is at the Oscars. Shrek's at the Oscars. You've got everyone around kind of celebrating with them. Donkey's God, there. You'd be fuming to be sat behind him. He's massive. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you who wasn't happy about it. Mike and Sully. Oh, that is genius. <laughs> and he must have known he never had a shot because the competition was fierce, but Jimmy Neutron. Oh, get him off the screen. <laughs> <laughs> so... Obviously, Shrek was, I mean, that sums it up, right? It was rapturously received. Like, if you do not remember this, like, we are Shrek, it's the funny ogre movie, we make our memes and all of that, ha, ha, ha. This was the best movie ever. It's hard to describe how obsessed the world was with Shrek. It was nominated for six BAFTAs. It took home Best Adapted Screenplay. Eddie Murphy was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Good. Yeah, I mean, correct. That's never happened before. I mean, it's hard enough to get comedy performances nominated, let alone cartoon ones. So, great reviews across the board. Roger Ebert, four out of four. Jolly and wicked, filled with sly in jokes, and yet somehow possessing a heart. So there you go. That's the point that we were making. Yeah. Right? There is something to feel here. Entertainment Weekly, a kind of palace coup, a shout of defiance, and a coming of age for DreamWorks. Everyone's raving about Eddie Murphy, but everyone's comparing it favorably to Disney specifically. There's hardly any reviews that don't mention that connection. New York Times says, beating up on the irritatingly dainty Disney trademarks is nothing new. It's just that it's rarely being done with the demolition derby zest of Shrek. <laughs> this does have big early 2000s demolition derby energy. I love it. Uh, and there's a couple of, of, of negative reviews. Uh, Village Voice said, 
snooty village voice. The movie is wall-to-wall, window-to-door noise, babbling and jokes. The first minute sees the first fart gag, Ben pointed out. Actually, two minutes. You're wrong, village voice. (laughs) Demographically, it's a hard-sell shotgun spray. And a couple of other reviews, like, critique the lack of heart and the charmless visuals compared to Pixar and Disney, which... I don't know. How are we supposed to trust the village voice when the villagers want to kill Shrek? (laughs) Excellent point. What about box office? Presumably huge box office hit. All the money? Uh, $267 million domestically, $484 million worldwide. Fourth biggest movie of 2001 behind... Not Mulholland Drive. No. Uh, was Minority Report 2001? Oh, much more obvious than that. Uh, Monsters, Inc. Okay. Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. Right, of course. It's a huge year. And, and, you know, that's, that's a big year. Lots of competition there. But it beat out all the competition. It was the biggest DVD of all time. Because everyone heard, they're doing a Shrek in the Swamp karaoke dance party. <laughs> and I need to be in on that. Yeah. So let's very quickly whiz past this. For me, this is like four and a half stars easily. I was so surprised watching this back. Genuinely how great Shrek is. I think it's pretty set in my head that Shrek 2 is a tiny bit better, but I'd forgotten how excellent the original is. So yeah, easy four and a half from me. Sam, this ogre has kept you employed for years. (laughs) This has to be the easiest five you've ever given, right? I Look, it's a good movie, but I have to... I can't give it a five because like... I, I'm not, I don't want to be the Shrek guy for the rest of my life. Like, I. <laughs> a tough look. That, you have made that rod for your own back. I, I'm cited on the Wikipedia for Shrek. I found that out last night. <laughs> that That's is amazing. What for? Uh, I can't remember something in that thing. <laughs> Whoever won a copy of Sam's book, please tell us uh, which bit um, was cited on Wikipedia. So, it was from, it was from the chapter titled The Shrekening. <laughs> of course it was. I like Shrek. It's not my favorite movie of all time. (laughs) I just think it's very interesting and significant. And not many other people were writing about it six years ago when I did my PhD. But it's like, yeah, four, four and a half, not as good as Shrek 2. Okay. That is, that is decided. Shrek 2 still wins uh, leagues above Shrek 3 and 4, which brings us to a whiz through the lasting legacy of Shrek. Because a DreamWorks movie is never just a DreamWorks movie? That feels weird to say. But frankly, there are all kinds of sequels, straight-to-DVD spin-offs, theme parks, and live experiences that you'd find on a Disney movie too. So what is the lasting legacy of Shrek? So first of all, I'm going to quickly, I think, run through the cinematic legacy of Shrek. All of the films and short films and TV specials and spin-offs in the Shrek franchise. So we've got Shrek 2... Best Shrek movie. Yeah. Shrek the third. Worst Shrek movie. Correct. (laughs) Shrek the final chapter, a.k.a. Shrek Forever After. If we had time, I would love you to go on a rant about Rumpelstiltskin in this movie, but we'll save that for another day. Nearly portrayed by Paul McCartney. Oh, no, I need it. Um, So they say it ain't auger till it's auger, but it certainly wasn't auger because you've got Puss in Boots. You've got Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Exceptional. Really, really good. Uh, and then, of course, we're going to the Shrek and the Swamp karaoke dance party where he sings Billy Joel. And um, Shrek 3D, the ghost of Lord Farquaad, <laughs> the film that they play on the Shrek 4D attraction at Universal Studios Orlando, 
Ben, I think, was one of the last people to ride this. I was one of the last people to go on this with John Hornbuckle, who is sitting right here. We were in Universal Studios together in Florida, and we were like, every we were on a big trip with a load of other people, and it got to the last day, and we were like, we have to do Shrek 4D. They're about to close Shrek 4D forever and ever and ever. And nobody else wanted to come on it with us. So John and I went on Shrek 4D, which was kind of like a honey, I shrunk the audience kind of thing. So you watch a Shrek short while sitting in a theater that was very old and like pummels your back, like just shoots stuff at your back and like just slaps you around the feet and like blasts air in your face while you're trying to enjoy a nice Shrek cartoon. <laughs> I can absolutely see why it doesn't exist anymore, but I am so glad that John and I were two of the last people to go on that ride. I think mere weeks before... There's been at the Christmas parade. This was also of that couple of days spent at Universal. The one photo I got with characters was with the three blind mice in Christmas getup. It was adorable. Uh, okay, let's let's pick up the pace. Uh, Shrek Far Far Away Idol from the Shrek Two DVD, yes. where we meet Simon Cowell. Oh no, it's so freaky from that. Uh, Shrek the Halls. Uh, Donkey's there was a Christmas for Shrek the Halls. <laughs> Donkey's Christmas Shrektacular. Uh, Shrek's Yule Log, which is a loop of a Yule Log um, that you can play to pretend you've got a fireplace at Christmas time and sometimes the Shrek characters walk past. Uh, Scared Shrekless, which is kind of a treehouse of horror thing. Like It's got a bunch of different segments, my favourite being the Shrek's Assist. <laughs> that is, that's real. That's real. Oh my God. Uh, in which... Shrek has to Shrek-sercise a possessed Pinocchio. There he is. Oh! There he is, projectile vomiting. There it is from a different angle. <laughs> so that's POV, you are Shrek-sercising Pinocchio while he pukes in your face. Then you get Thriller Night, uh, another Halloween short where they do the Thriller dance. Oh, All the okay. zombified, nasty Shrek characters, there they are dancing. A little bit there. All the villains come back to life and they're all decomposing. Uh, the pig who cried werewolf. That is a stretch. That doesn't scan. Uh, the, uh, Puss in Boots, the three Diablos, an all-new adventure. I'm going to say that's not canon. Uh, I don't think so, no. No Diablos in Puss in Boots 2. Uh, and Puss in Book, trapped in an epic tale, which is a bandersnatch. Like, oh, <laughs> like, in, a like choose it's your a, own adventure. It's a Netflix choose your own adventure. Again, Puss in Book. That doesn't work as well as I think. No, they it works it for me. It works in a northeast accent, puss in book. <laughs> Perfect. It was just for you, as I suspected all along. They made this exactly with you in mind. Um, Shrek, there are 48 Shrek video games. Sorry, what? 48. 48. <laughs> We're not doing all of them. We're doing the highlights. I think that's next. Yeah, so there's a lot. There's like six racing games. There's another one about to come out, actually. Um, but this was one of the first ones. Shrek Smash and Crash Racing. What is Shrek driving? What is he riding? He's a sentient creature with Shrek ears and like like seaweed hair? It's like a, sh it's a giant Shrek toad with grass for hair. We truly, and I cannot express this enough, do not have time for this. <laughs> all right, we'll move on, we'll move on, we'll move on. Shrek Super Party, where they've all been yassified. <laughs> for some reason. Um, Shrek Fairy Tale Freakdown. Perfect title, I want to play this game. Shrek Extra Large. <laughs> Got Humpty Dumpty there. Shrek 2 Ogre Baller. Shrek bowling game. They just put Shrek logos on the bowling pins as if that makes them like Shrek pins. 
Uh, Shrek, swamp fun with early math. <laughs> Shrek surrounded by the sums seven plus three, two minus five, and then like six more than four. <laughs> and he's got a real, he's real happy about that. Shrek, augers and drunkies. No, burn it. Burn it in a fire. That is, that so is terrible. This is like a Nintendogs, if anyone had Nintendogs, oh, where you have to again. raise... An Nintendoga? A Nintendaunt. So there's... Oh! So, like, you're on the DS touchscreen, wiping down the baby with oh, a sponge. Oh, no! Giving Sparkle a good sponge bath. Ooh. Shrek was in Tony Hawk's Underground 2. Yes! As an unlockable character. And he had full stats. Look yeah. at that. <laughs> oh, he's got the biggest ollie in town. Amazing. So we also need to mention Shrek the Musical. Do which, we? Oh my God, look at these horrifying <laughs> costumes. This, this is, is terrifying. It's coming back to London for, I think, a week at the end of September. I, oh, I hate, I hate how obliged I feel that we kind of need to go to that. Just as a bigger, a bigger Shrek from Shrek the Musical. Um, Truly disgusting large freak, is that? <laughs> and we have also, in terms of music, now that's what I call Shrek. <laughs> Um, which that is, is what I thought. That is the phrase I thought the whole way through the movie Shrek. Now that <laughs> is what I call Shrek. Now that's what I call Shrek. Every gag. And uh, it's only like nine songs long. I thought it was going to be like every song, like two discs, every song from every Shrek movie. But it's got, includes Smash Mouth, Lip Sync, obviously Funky Town, Antonio Banderas, Eddie Murphy singing on this, and a bunch of people I don't know at all. But I think we need to wrap this up by talking about London's very own bit of lasting legacy. Oh, I wish we had more time for this than we do, but let's get into Shrek's adventure. <laughs> so, all right, Shrek's adventure on the South Bank, uh, where I went in February 2020. So this was the last thing I did <laughs> for, for two years. This was my memory of the outside world, was Shrek's adventure on the South Bank. So I went, there's me and my friend Emma, Emma, who can't be here today, but she would have loved to be in. And uh, yeah, she had a breakdown in the middle of Shrek's adventure. <laughs> She's the friend that I keep aside for doing things like this. Uh, that's Emma at the end <laughs> of Shrek's adventure. So the premise is, oh, there's the toilets. Better out than in, one of them says. The other one says, Orga Perfume Distillery. Farts. Nice. <laughs> and urine. Uh, and they've also, there's these pictures of Fergus Farkle and Felicia, but then behind them, it's Prince George and Princess Charlotte. Because <laughs> it's London. So the premise is, you're in a London bus, being driven by donkey, you've got your 3D gags on, and you are on your way to far, far away on a tour. Yeah? Yeah. I'm with you. And then on your way, you get attacked by the witches from Shrek 4. It's very Shrek 4, I'm afraid. This is more of a Shrek 4 Lassen legacy. So Rumpelstiltskin has all these witches and he sent them after your bus and you're getting attacked. But luckily you fly through some familiar landscapes. You fly through uh, China where Kung Fu Panda lives. And Kung Fu Panda flies past and helps you out. You fly through Madagascar and the penguins come and help you escape the witches. You fly through Burke, which is where the dragons live in right. How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, of and course. the dragons help you out. So this is really DreamWorks Cinematic Universe here. And then you land in Shrek's swamp, but Shrek's not there. And that's the first thing you need to know if you're thinking of paying 30 pounds <laughs> to get into Shrek's adventure is that Shrek is not there. 
Shrek is absent. He's on the run from Rumpelstiltskin, and you've got to find him. So you go through all these different sets from the Shrek movies. You meet animated characters like Puss in Boots and live actors who play like the ugly stepsisters and stuff like that. You play Wheel of Torture with Pinocchio. Oh, there's My a kid's bit just poking him in the nose, kicking him while he's down. There's a bit where you go through what they called the maze of insanity, which is. That is where the world shifted off its axis for Yes, you. as I entered the maze of insanity and everything was fine. And, and I left the maze of insanity and it was like, okay, now we need to go home for two years. <laughs> and this maze of insanity is a hall of mirrors and the magic mirror is like popping up on all of them to laugh at you. And then at the end of the maze of insanity, we had to wait for 10 minutes while they tried to find a lost child. Who <laughs> <laughs> uh, was, you know, it wasn't... The, it wasn't like there was any danger. The kid's just somewhere in the maze of insanity, but like, that's what it's for. And, and, and the actress playing Sleeping Beauty at the end was like, yeah, we get this a lot. <laughs> and then you end up locked in Rumpelstiltskin's dungeon, and then Shrek, like his big Shrek hands, break the wall down, like a big robot Shrek. And he's like, oh, hey guys, it's me. What's been keeping you? Uh, and then finally, you're allowed to exit and meet. Shrek. Oh. And get your... It's better than the musical version, at least, I will say. Yeah. And get your photo taken with Shrek next to the sign for the London Auger Ground <laughs> uh, uh, for a nominal fee. But what is free is you can enter this, like, little... Basically a little Madden Two Swords for DreamWorks characters um, where you can get your photo taken with Kung Fu Panda's dad. <laughs> if you haven't seen Kung Fu Panda, his dad's a duck. <laughs> it's really funny. It's one of my favorite DreamWorks characters, Disney Versity Legend, etc. Uh, there's us with the penguins of Madagascar. And there's Emma <laughs> with one of the most haunted photos that you'll ever see. About to have her soul destroyed by Gloria the Hippo. <laughs> From Madagascar there. Like everything about that is a nightmare. The thing that I need to let you know is that this, we whizzed through in like three minutes. Coming out of this, Sam and Emma gave us a breakdown of what happened in Shrek's adventure that was over an hour long. Well, Emma had to go to bed halfway through because she was feeling sick. And then that night, we went to see Carly Rae Jepsen. What a blessed day. What a truly blessed day. Yep, so there you go. Shrek's adventure. What a lasting legacy. It's still there. Lord knows for how long. Usually you can get vouchers on the side of your Coco Pops or something to get in for less than 30 quid. We didn't. But uh, that's an option you can take. Worth the price. Well, for the last time, can I get a little music sting from you all, please? Three, two, one. Thank you very much. And that is it for this week's class. Thank you so much for coming to join us live once again, for wanting to spend your Saturday morning talking Shrek with us. I still can't believe that you all wanted to do this. And for selling us out. We're really blown away by that. Thank you all for coming. Have you had a good time today? Thank you. <laughs> we... We have had an absolute blast. We want to say a huge thank you to King's Place and the entire team here, uh, especially Zoe and Rebecca. Thank you for making this possible. We really appreciate that. One last thing, we want to dedicate this show to Smash Mouth singer Steve Harwell, who passed away this week at the age of 56. Uh, I think it's fair to say that Shrek and the ongoing legacy of Shrek would not have been the same 
without him. So please, everybody, give it up for Steve Harwell. Join us again for our next seminar when we'll be going down into the depths with 2001's Atlantis, The Lost Empire. For now, it's goodbye from the one and only Dr. Sam Summers. Oh, bye. <laughs> and it's goodbye from me. I'm off to queue up the Shrek in the Swamp karaoke dance party. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> This is a song that I wrote about Stanley Tucci in the style of The Doors. Come on, come on, come on, come on now, Tucci, babe. Can't you see? He's in the Hunger Games. He played the dad in Easy A. He was Grammy nominated for the audiobook of Shrek. Thank you.